So this is our uh, continuing discussion of Caveas and Botman's mathematical thought, standing in for the uh, Simon Don reading group. So we, we've read uh, in the last two sessions, we, we read their presentations and the first part of the discussion after their presentations. And we'll continue with the discussion today. Uh, and hopefully, I think we should be able to finish the rest of the, the discussion today. So some of the discussion that we saw last time, it was mostly, I think everyone who comments uh, in the part we, we read last time is a, a mathematician. And they they all make this comment about how, you know, I'm a mathematician and I, I didn't really follow all of the philosophy and, and all of the um, philosophical nuances of the presentations. So they all sort of make the same remark. And one one thing I found interesting about some of the early commentary is that they all or several of them seem to be interested in this question of whether mathematical theorems have some sort of pre-existence before their discovery or 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 this this question of the the necessity of mathematical mathematical truths and and so they all all of these mathematicians they all seem to take the position that mathematical theorems are pre-existent that in when you prove a theorem like as a, a a human being who does mathematics you're just discovering something that had uh existence prior to that discovery and and the reason i think this is interesting is because that question of the pre-existence of a mathematical theorem is not really what uh, Kavayas and, and Lutman were, were talking about. That wasn't really the question for them. But um, as soon as the, the mathematicians sort of, I think, like as soon as they start hearing the idea of philosophy of mathematics, then they, they sort of immediately gravitate towards this question for whatever reason. And it's, it's also interesting that there, there are no mathematicians present at this meeting, or who, at least who, who comment at this meeting, who take a, a, a constructivist position, for example, who think that mathematical theorems are human constructions and are the result of some sort of human activity, uh, and therefore that they don't pre-exist um, their discovery or creation. Uh, and uh, so this is definitely a minority position within mathematics but it's not like uh, it's not a position that that is completely excluded from mathematics. There are mathematicians who who have a, a constructivist philosophy of mathematics, uh, and so it might have been interesting to see what um, someone from that uh, perspective would have made of some of these uh, ideas as well. And then, yeah, so so they make the people that have commented so far have made a few objections. So there's this this question of the necessity of mathematical uh, discovery. Um, so it's a slightly different question than the question of the pre-existence of mathematical theorems, but the, the question is whether uh, the creation of or the discovery of a certain mathematical concept or a mathematical proposition at a certain time was necessary. Uh, and, and so you can take sort of two Two different positions on this. So you could say that there's a, a contingency to mathematical discovery uh, in the sense that what ended up being discovered or uh, produced at a certain time could very well have not been discovered or produced uh, at that time. You know, just if someone had um, 
got hit by a bus the day before they proved this theorem, then maybe that theorem would never have been proven. The other position would be uh, that there's a, a necessity in the sense that if that person had not proven that theorem, then someone else would have done it in the next year or, or in five years or whatever time period. Uh, and so some of the objections that, that are made in, in this uh, commentary period have to do with this question of, of the necessity of uh, discoveries in, in mathematics. Yeah, so maybe we can stop there and, and then pick up from where we ended last time. We weren't 100% sure where we stopped last time because we missed a week, so our memories are not that clear on the point of where exactly we ended, but we're on page 16 uh, as far as my notes indicate, so I apologize if we uh, repeat something that we looked at last time, but I'll, I'll pick up from page 16, which is about halfway through Reche's contribution or, or comment on the, the discussion. Uh, so I'll read the rest of his, his comment, and then we can pause there. So starting from page 16. One could cite many other examples. In elementary geometry, one introduces the consideration of supplementary trihedra. Here again, I don't think there's a real phenomenon that forces us to consider these supplementary trihedra, but it does provide a convenient way to transform one proposition into another in elementary geometry. I see, therefore, in the examples I've just mentioned, two categories of notions, some that fall well within the framework of an autonomous mathematics and others, on the contrary, that do not seem to me to be reconcilable with the idea of an autonomy of mathematics. On the contrary, this leads me to, to agree with Mr. Cavallès for reasons different from his own, it is true, on the unpredictability of mathematics, placing myself at a point of view which, moreover, is entirely reconcilable with that presented by Mr. Paul Lévy, and which would seem to lead to a contrary conclusion. Mr. Lévy gave many examples where problems could not fail to be solved by mathematicians, and in this sense, mathematics was predictable, because these were problems that mathematicians had posed for the internal development of mathematics. But there are constantly, in the development of sciences outside mathematics, problems that arise that are imposed on mathematicians that mathematicians are asked to solve and that give them new ideas, forcing them to introduce new notions. And those ones are unpredictable. We do not know, we cannot even imagine the nature of the problems that in 50 years time, technology or physics may pose to mathematicians. Perhaps we will have the means to solve these problems by drawing on the existing arsenal of mathematical theories, Perhaps we will have to create new mathematical tools. There is an impulse from outside and the, whose interventions are of an unpredictable nature. That is what I wanted to say about autonomy and non-predictability of mathematics. Uh, in the footnote here, um, these are footnotes added by Frechet in, uh, to the, the stenography um, afterwards. Uh, so he says, I developed these two points, among others, in a report presented in Zurich in December 1938 on the question of the foundations of mathematics and general analysis at a colloquium organized by the International Institute for Intellectual Cooperation, whose debates will be published by that institute. Uh, end of the footnote. As for Mr. Lotman's thesis, I am a little hesitant to comment on most of it because I find different possible interpretations. Some seem to me to be quite immediate and acceptable, but do not seem to me to be reconcilable with the conclusion. This is probably due to what I did not quite understand. I see at the beginning sentences like this. The establishment of effective mathematical relations seems to, be, seems to me, in fact, to be rationally subsequent to the problem of the possibility of stud bonds in general. 
Mr. Lotman was moreover careful to point out that for him, this is not a historical point of view. Indeed, from the historical point of view, the answer is not doubtful. The establishment of effective mathematical relations is on the contrary, certainly anterior to the problem of the possibility of such bonds. So what exactly does it mean, rationally posterior? I ask the same question for the sentence. We see in what sense we can speak of the participation of distinct mathematical theories in a common dialectic that dominates them. Considering that these two sentences in the text that surrounds them, uh, sorry, considering these two sentences in the text that surrounds them, it seems to me that there is an answer that would come uh, that would come quite naturally. It is that the different mathematical theories, especially the proofs contained in these theories, consist of reasonings applied to certain particular circumstances, but that they all belong to the same general theory, which Mr. Lotman designates, I believe, under the name of theory of ideas, and the mathematicians would probably call logic. If that were the case, I think everyone would agree, but it would be so obvious that I do not think Mr. Lotman meant that precisely. In any case, it would be irreconcilable with the end of his presentation. Mathematical thought, therefore, has the eminent role of offering the philosopher the constantly repeated spectacle of the genesis of the real from the idea. I do not know exactly what this means, but from the reflections I made earlier, it seems to me that it is the real that gave rise to the idea, at least as far as mathematics is concerned. It is the demands of reality that have posed mathematical problems and have led mathematicians to use logic and to formulate certain definitions, certain axioms. I can see, therefore, the genesis of the idea from the real, but I confess that I do not understand the opposite position. Perhaps the rest of the discussion will clarify this point. And another footnote uh, from Fréchel. While correcting the stenography of my speech, I note that the main difficulty for me was indeed to understand Mr. Lotman's language precisely and accurately. As he indicated in his reply, which he, what he means by the real does not in any way correspond to the concrete, the sensible, with which I had identified the real. In the absence of this identification, my objection can be dropped, but it was not useless to give once again a precise example of the importance of a univocal interpretation of the language used. I have been told by philosophers that this difficulty, which appears more clearly in a debate between philosophers and mathematicians, is not absent from discussions where only philosophers by profession meet. Right, so here we have, um, again, discussion of the autonomy thesis, so this thesis that um, mathematics has a uh, a certain um, necessity in its development that um, it, uh, its notions appear not as a matter of just contingent uh, historical accident, but uh, there's a, a necessity um, of the appearance of a, a, a notion at a particular time. Um, and Kreshe uh, here, um, he, he says, he, he doesn't necessarily want to reject the notion of autonomy, but he wants to present um, uh, something distinct from autonomy, uh, an alternate um, sort of mode of development uh, within mathematics. And, and he points to the way that mathematics um, draws from other disciplines or um, is, is solicited by other disciplines so that uh, physics, for example, will have a, a particular problem and uh, there, there will be a, a problem of physics that requires the formulation of some new mathematical notion. Uh, and um, it, because of this role of physics in soliciting uh, something from mathematics, there's, um, there's um, 
not this autonomy that, uh, or, or at least for Frechet, he doesn't think this, we can characterize this as autonomy because there's this role of an external discipline in bringing about this, uh, the new mathematical notion. Uh, and then his, his commentary on uh, Lotman, um, as he notes in his footnote there, he, he um, in particular, he, he tends to um, look at the relationship between the real and the ideal in Lotman as a, rela a relationship between something uh, uh, physical or, or sensible uh, and then the something uh, supersensible. Uh, which is not uh, quite how Lotman understands the distinction between the real and the ideal. So, um, in in Lotman's presentation and then in his response at the end that we'll get to uh, later today, he um, he characterizes this relationship between uh, the ideal and the real as one that takes place between the realm of ideas. Uh, these this dialectical uh, relationship between notions, um, the realm of ideas on the one hand, and then the realm of concrete mathematical theories on the other. So when when he talks about the genesis of the real from the ideal, he's talking about how concrete mathematical theories are produced out of uh, the dialectic of uh, of opposed notions, uh, and he he makes. Uh, a brief comment about redoing the the Timaeus, um, which uh, suggests um, a role of his account of dialectics in uh, sort of laying the foundations for physics um, that would be uh, in some sense uh, similar to the way that that for Plato you have um, in the Timaeus you have um, uh, this these mathematical principles that um, govern the creation of the universe. Um, but that's a, a separate step in, in uh, mathematical philosophy for Lotman. It's, um, um, it's not the same thing as the passage from the dialectical notions to, um, to the concrete mathematical theories. There's a, another step from there to uh, the physical world. Uh, and then he also, uh, Frisha here also, um, he, he seems to have difficulty with this notion of um, what is rationally uh, anterior and, and rationally posterior, um, which I don't think is a necessarily very difficult notion. Um, and, and it's one that you can find in, in mathematics itself or, or not, not um, sort of explicitly stated in mathematics, but you have, um, if you compare uh, the presentation of a, a mathematical subject in a textbook compared to the way that the same content was presented when it was first introduced, um, you can see that in the textbook written, you know, 50, 100 years later, um, it's presented in a very different way than the, the way the material was presented when it was first introduced. So the historical, um, you have a historical um, relationship of anteriority between different mathematical notions. Uh, so one notion is introduced before another one in time. But then you can also look at, um, within a given presentation, you can look at the order of, of, of presentation of the notions and say that this 
notion is um, is uh, presented first, and then serves as the basis for the the next notion. Um, and and I don't think that's uh, an especially obscure relation. Um, um, right, and then so Angus has a question. Um, is this Lutman's point about how the question may not be explicitly formulated before the solution is determined? Um, yeah, so he he brings us up in his um, response at the end. Um, so yes, so you can have um, uh, you can have a question that is only understood in a vague way or some sort of obscure way. Um, and then it's only once you solve that problem or, or answer that question that you have a way of uh, formulating the question clearly. Uh, and and so um, the, the actual formulation of the question might only happen after or at the same time as the solution is found. Um, and so there's a, a sort of um, uh, this sort of um, uh, groping in the dark, I guess you can say, of uh, you know just sort of uh, trial and error of um, trying to find um, these solutions to problems that are not fully understood, uh, and then it's only once you actually solve the problem that you fully understand what the problem was in the first place, uh, and and so uh, even though uh, so despite all that, despite the um, the historical reality of uh, the question only being formulated after the the solution is found. There's still a sense in which the question is logically anterior to the the problem to the solution um, or to the answer. Um, so, um, like if you're writing a, a textbook after after the solution has been found, you're, you're going to state the problem first, and then you explain what the solution is. Um, so, um, yeah, this notion of uh, rational anteriority, um, I don't think is is necessarily something uh, mysterious. Uh, it, it's just a question of um, what sort of comes first in a presentation uh, in in when when you you have a clear understanding of the subject um, as opposed to what uh, happens to come first in historical development, which might not necessarily be the the uh, the most fundamental principles once you have a, a clear presentation of that subject. Okay, so let's uh, go on to the next um, intervention from Erasman. Uh, I'm not sure how long this one is. Uh, yeah, it's about a page, so we can uh, just read that one in one go. Uh, if someone else would like to read. I can read. <clears throat> Uh, Mr. Erasman, I have noted some thoughts that relate to Mr. Lodemont's thesis. It seems to me extremely interesting to see in it the general problems that we find in several mathematical theories. But I quote one of the most characteristic sentences, quote, one of the essential theses of this work affirms the need to separate the supramathematical conception of the problem of the bonds that certain notions support between them and the mathematical discovery of these effective bonds within a theory. If I have understood correctly, it would not be possible in this field of supramathematical dialectics to specify and study the nature of these relations between general ideas. The philosopher could only highlight the urgency of the problem. It seems to me that if we 
want to talk about these general ideas. We already conceive in a vague way the existence of certain general relations between these ideas. Therefore, we cannot stop halfway. We must set ourselves the truly mathematical problem of explicitly formulating these general relationships between the ideas considered. I believe this problem can be satisfactory, satisfactorily resolved as far as are concerned relations between the whole and its parts, the global and the local, the intrinsic and the extrinsic, etc. Thus, the relations between a fundamental set and its parts form precisely the subject of a chapter of abstract set theory. Between the parts of a set, we have the following relations. Inclusion of one part and another, intersection of two parts, union of two parts, complementary part of a part. In the set of parts of a fundamental set, these relations give rise to a whole calculation, namely Boolean algebra. These are a few general relationships that can be found in any mathematical theory. Given a fundamental set equipped with a particular mathematical structure, for example, a group structure or a topological space structure, the relationship between this fundamental set and one of its parts results in the mathematical notion of structure induced on the part. I cannot be more precise because we would first have to define the general concept of mathematical structure. The problem of the relations between intrinsic and extrinsic properties and the problem of the situational properties of a part in a fundamental set is nothing other than the problem of the relations between the structure of a fundamental set and the structures induced on a part and on the complementary part. With regard to the notions of local and global, it seems to me that the notion of local has meaning only for a, for a structure of a topological space as we then have the notion of neighborhood of a point. The notion of local property at a point can be deduced from the notion of structure induced on an arbitrary neighborhood of the point. We come once again to a purely mathematical concept. There are many more examples. I think that the, pro the general problems raised by Mr. Lodman can be expressed in mathematical terms. And this is in line with the thought expressed in the summary of Mr. Caballese's thesis, talking about mathematics can only be redoing it. Right, so here, um, to some extent, I think Rasman uh, is sort of uh, um, agreeing with Lotman without realizing it, um, because Lotman says precisely that um, mathematical theories are, are essential for the working out of the dialectic of, of the uh, of the notions, so that um, in the notions um, are related to each other in various ways. Uh, but as soon as you try to actually work out what that relation is, you, you're immediately doing mathematics. Um, so in in philosophy, you can pose the problem of the relationship between the whole and the part, but you can only actually um, produce a solution to that problem by doing mathematics and having um, a mathematical theory of holes and parts, uh, like in, in the example that Erasman um, gives, uh, where we have um, the relationships between parts in, in set theory, which produces a, a Boolean algebra structure. Um, so I don't think uh, Erasman is really um, disagreeing with Lotman here or, or um, what he takes to be an objection to, to Lotman is really just what Lotman was saying. Uh, so it, it's not really an objection um, 
or or it shouldn't really be taken as an objection. Um, okay, so we can go on to um, Hippolyte's next uh, intervention. Uh, let's see how long this is. Um, yeah, it's just over a page, so um, I can read this one. Oh, and uh, maybe just before I, I start, I'll just mention that so uh, Hippolyte is um, is the first of the um, people commenting here who is uh, a philosopher rather than a mathematician. Uh, so that's something to keep in mind as we go through it. Okay, Mr. Hippolyte. I must confess that although I fully understood Mr. Cavallese's thesis, I understood Mr. Lotman's argument much less well. What struck me in Mr. Lotman's presentation was the ambiguity of the word dialectic and the different meanings with which this word has been used. It seems to me that applied to mathematics, the word dialectic was used in three different senses, or at least I thought I discerned three quite different meanings of the term. With the first meaning of the term, Mr. Lotman would agree with the thesis of Cavallese. Their two conceptions on this point would be similar. Dialectic would be the very experience of the life of mathematics. It would reconcile in a way a need for development that has already been mentioned and the apparent contingency of this development. In another meaning, Mr. Lotman's dialectic is a kind of problematic, in the modern sense of the word, something completely different. I believe that it is above all in this sense, moreover, that he uses the word. This dialectic is a problematic, a kind of opening on theoretical problems that the mathematician would come to embody in his research. And in a third meaning, and this is precisely where the ambiguity seems to me to be strongest, Mr. Lotman takes up the word dialectic with the meaning with which philosophers have taken it most often. It is indeed a question of dialectic of form and matter, local and global, etc. It seems to me, for my part, that if we wanted at all costs to use the word dialectic in the philosophy of mathematics, we would have to use it only in the first sense, that is to say, in the sense of a life of mathematical experience over the course of its history. I will take an example that has struck me quite strongly. It is the development of the theory of equations from Viette to Galois. I think that if there is a necessity, as Mr. Cartan said, in the development of mathematics, this necessity appears very clearly in the development of this theory from Viette to Descartes, but it no longer appears at all when it comes to the discoveries of Galois. It seems that there is, in mathematical theory, something quite new, something unexpected, that has been introduced and that cannot exactly be foreseen from the previous development of mathematics. This is something that struck me quite strongly, studying the decomposition of a group into invariant subgroups in Galois and the application of this problem to the algebraic solution of equations after studying the problem of the theory of algebraic equations in Descartes. It seems to me that in this case, we can, see, uh, we can both see a necessary development and then the appearance of a completely new method in the problem an un unpredictable creation, if not after the fact. There is another remark that this problem of the evolution of the theory of equations from Viette to Galois inspires in me. One could express the matter vulgarly by saying that we do not know how to undo what we know how to do, or that intellectual activity exceeds itself in what it generates. The given equations seem enigmatic mathematical beings in a way. We know how to build them by the products of binomials as Harriet did. We can thus manage to construct equations of any degree, but then we are unable, the problem of division after that of multiplication, to undo any given equation. It was necessary to attempt this analysis in general to introduce new notions which, moreover, let themselves be understood in a certain way. Thus, for example, the imaginaries foreseen by Descartes. Descartes in 1637 explicitly said 
there were n positive, negative, or imaginary roots of the equation of the nth degree. This is a prediction of what appeared much later. I think in summary that it would rather that I would rather agree with Mr. Cavallas, who wants to see in mathematics an essential independent life. One might also think that the necessity of the development of mathematics and historical contingency must be reconciled in this life of mathematics. As for Mr. Lutman's thesis, one might fear by adopting it to see mathematical notions evaporate in a certain way into pure theoretical problems that go beyond them, such as form and matter, the local and the global. The very originality of this mathematics would be in danger of disappearing. I did not quite understand in Mr. Lutman's thesis whether the mathematician ended up finding these problems or whether it was on the contrary, and this would be the problematic, an ideal requirement of these problems, which, given first, would then come to be embodied in mathematics. There is an ambiguity here, but perhaps I have misunderstood Mr. Lutman's thesis. Right, so here, um, Hippolyte suggests that there are three different meanings to the notion of dialectic uh, that... Um, or the, the term dialectic that Lokman uses in his presentation. So the first is where dialectic would just mean the experience of mathematics or the uh, development of mathematics through history. Uh, and he takes this notion of dialectics to be unproblematic. Um, and um, he thinks this is the, the correct notion of dialectics or the, um, the, the use of the term dialectics that should be um, preserved in in philosophy of mathematics. Uh, and then a second meaning is where um, dialectic uh, would mean um, a problematic, so a, a set of problems or um, uh, a framework in which certain problems appear. Um, and uh, in uh, in Lotman's presentation, or uh, sorry, in, in Lotman's uh, response later on, he he accepts this meaning of the word uh, as as being a valid one, and he he argues that um, these first two meanings are actually um, reconcilable with each other um, and uh, are not actually contradictory. Uh, and then the third meaning is um, the use of the term dialectic um, uh, as as the relationship between um, between I, uh, sorry between notions uh, like uh, form and matter, local and global, and so on. Um, and um, Lotman will will specify in his uh, response later on that it, this third notion should not be taken to be. Um, something independent. So there's no such thing as a, a dialectic that would be independent from mathematics. Um, that would be something um, uh, extra mathematical. Um, it's only in uh, mathematics itself that this dialectic realizes itself, um, that um, uh, the relationship between notions is only um, brought about in concrete mathematical theories. Uh, and then um, after after this question about the meaning of the word dialectic, um, he introduces the the um, discussion of the development of algebra, um, and he he suggests that there's um, um, 
there's both a necessity and a contingency uh, in that history, in different moments of that history. So you have uh, a necessary development um, through part of the history. And then with Galois, you have um, this um, moment of contingency or, or of the introduction of something that was not at all um, uh, foreseen uh, or foreseeable in what was uh, present before. Um, and, and so here, uh, for Hippolyte, the the development of mathematics would not be um, it would not be something that is both necessary and contingent at the same time, but it's something that would be alternately necessary and contingent. Uh, so you would have certain moments of necessity and, and other moments of contingency. Um, and so this is um, this is. Uh, uh, a, a notion of mathematical development that is um, not uh, not a dialectical one in the way that uh, Cavalier's notion of of mathematical development is dialectical. Uh, and then the last bit is uh, an objection to Lotman again, where he he argues that by um, by um, accepting the idea of something like a, a supramathematical uh, dialectic that is realized in mathematics, you you are sort of um, um, subordinating mathematics to something non-mathematical. Um, and, and this is uh, um, something that um, sort of erases the specificity of mathematics. It, it makes mathematics into something um, that is sort of um, uh, secondary to the uh, the understanding of the dialectic of the ideas themselves, um, and and so uh, I think for for Lotman the the way that he would um, the way that he would answer this objection is that um, it's not it's not that mathematics is secondary. Um, it's just that um, the actual work of mathematics. Uh, um, always has to do with concrete mathematical theories, uh, and it's only it's only afterwards that the philosopher can come and find the work of the dialectical ideas in that mathematical um, the concrete mathematical theory. Uh, so, um, with respect to our knowledge, the the actual work of the mathematician comes first even if um, rationally speaking uh, or logically speaking, the uh, dialectical ideas are, are primary and uh, the mathematical, the concrete mathematical theory is something uh, that is secondary in the logical sense. So there is no, um, it, there isn't exactly a subordination of uh, mathemat mathematicians to, um, to philosophers, for example, uh, it's it's actually the other way around in terms of the um, historical introduction of these ideas or uh, how how we come to grasp dialectical ideas in the first place. Um, I'm a little bit confused about this, the point about the third sense of dialectic. Uh, the idea that this, the um ideal notions and ideas are not independent of mathematics so my understanding was that uh they were kind of pre-mathematical and not mathematical 
uh, I guess maybe is the point just that they're only they're only made concrete in terms of mathematical theories. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, so yes, they're they're pre-mathematical in the sense that um, the uh, they are logically anterior to mathematics, um, so that uh, um, once we have a um, a rational grasp of a mathematical theory, we can see the the dialectical ideas at work in that theory. So we can see a certain theory as um, having to do with the relationship between intrinsic and extrinsic, for example. Um, but uh, um, it's only ever in mathematical, in concrete mathematical theories that the um, the relationship between these dialectical notions actually works itself out or, or uh, is sort of incarnated uh, so that um, the the problem of the relationship between the intrinsic and the extrinsic is not something that can be worked out independently of mathematics. It's only um, it's only by doing mathematics that we can actually have a, a solution to the problem of how the intrinsic and the extrinsic are related to each other. Okay, thanks. That makes sense. Right. Um, but yeah, it is a it's a a, a subtle position because um, uh, on the one hand he wants to recognize this pre mathematical reality that mathematics incarnates, um, and then on the other hand he he wants to say that this um, this pre mathematical reality is only ever instantiated in concrete mathematical theories. So the the relationship between um, the pre-mathematical reality, the the dialectical ideas, and the the actual mathematical reality is uh, a subtle one. It's not um, it's not straightforward. Okay, so let's go on to um, uh, Schrecker's um, discussion, um, uh, which is a short one. Um, yeah, let's let's go on to. Schrecker's uh, discussion, um, if someone else would like to read. Um, I can read it. Should I just read the Kaveh's response and then Schrecker's response to Kaveh? Yeah, yeah, you can, like, Kaveh's just makes a, a little interjection, and you can continue past that point. Okay. Uh, Mr. Schrecker, after so many mathematical considerations, it may be allowed to a philosopher to present some reflections that do not absolutely respect the autonomy in which mathematicians necessarily confine themselves. Their target is the impossibility affirmed by Mr. Caballes of defining mathematics. According to him, any definition of mathematics would lead to absurdity, because it would be impossible to define mathematics by something that it is not. But it seems to me that the same difficulty is found in all sciences. No science is capable of being defined by its own means and methods. It is always necessary to put oneself outside of science to be able to arrive at a definition of its field. But that doesn't mean that we would necessarily define mathematics by something it is not. Mathematics is a science. This is the first element of a definition, and it is certainly not heteronymous. It is a hypothetico-deductive science. That is a second element. But it is true that we cannot define it while remaining in the mathematical formalism and while respecting in the definition the autonomy of the mathematical field. 
Formalism and autonomy apply to all mathematical problems. However, the definition of mathematics is not itself a mathematical problem. It is a problem that arises in the theory of science, which is in no way obliged to fit into the coherence of mathematical formalism itself. Thus, the refutation of the hypothetico-deductive character of mathematics seems to me to be turning in a circle, because this refutation itself uses the hypothetico-deductive method. An attempt is made to give this refutation by means of reasoning which, being deductive, is necessarily also hypothetical, because it presupposes the effectiveness of the formalism by which it operates. By denying the hypothetico-deductive character of mathematics, one turns in a closed circle or in a closed system that has neither entry nor exit. And then Cabeas interjects and says, I have never denied this character. I have only said that one cannot define it by this alone because we must use mathematical theory. Strucker responds, but it is obvious that if we try to define mathematics by using mathematical theories, we will never succeed. On the con if, on the contrary, one decides to define them by other means, by emancipating oneself from formalism and employing historical or philosophical methods, it seems possible to succeed. And all the more so because, without a doubt, we know how to distinguish mathematics from other sciences when we undertake its history or when we consider it as an object of philosophy. Some great mathematicians have proposed a definition which, although it is not absolutely satisfactory, nevertheless seems to me to be on the right track. Thus, Bolzano defined mathematics as the science of general laws that all possible things necessarily follow. And H. Weil proposed a definition that does not differ from this essentially. It does not seem, therefore, that the philosopher is obliged in the face of the problem of the definition of mathematics to the resignation that Mr. Caballes asks of him. Right, so this, um, this has to do with the, the question that Caballes raised, or the, the, the question, the objection that Caballes raised to the attempts to define mathematics. Um, and he suggests that, or he argues that it's, it's not possible to define mathematics because you either have to um, say that mathematics is X, which is something not mathematical, and then you're defining it in terms of something um, something that it is not. Or, on the other hand, you you use mathematics itself to define mathematics. So you use some sort of mathematical method um, to define mathematics, but then you're sort of going in a circle and you, you never um, enter into uh, into that circle and, and produce a, a definition that could sort of serve as a as a uh, an uh, an explanation of what mathematics is, um, and uh, Schrecker here he um, he argues that um, we can in fact give a definition of mathematics, um, but we have to do so um, using non mathematical methods, so historical or philosophical methods. Uh, and so he, he gives uh, not a definition of mathematics, but uh, what he calls an element of, of the definition. So um, the, the, the notion of mathematics as a hypothetical deductive science. And um, Caballas 
uh, in his interjection here, he he uh, explains that he he doesn't deny that mathematics has this this property of being a hypothetical deductive science. Um, so, namely, a, a science that proceeds by making hypotheses and then deducing consequences of those hypotheses. Um, uh, so, Cavaillas doesn't deny that that mathematics has this property, but he denies that this property can be defined um, uh, independently of mathematics. Because once you say that um, uh, mathematics is a hypothetical deductive system um, or a hypothetical deductive science, then you have to explain what you mean by something deductive and or what a deduction is. And, and then you are sort of inevitably led to construct a theory of deduction, which is precisely mathematical logic. Um, so your definition of mathematics as a hypothetical deductive science uh, relies on mathematical logic as a discipline, uh, a, a subdiscipline of mathematics, uh, and so you're 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 not actually um, sort of producing an entry into mathematics. You're you're actually just presupposing the existence of mathematics, uh, and 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 sort of stuck in that circle. Um, so I think um, I think the next bit after the objection is probably more relevant. Where um, Schrecke, um he points to um, the definition that Bolzano um, had presented that um, mathematics is the science of general laws that all possible things necessarily follow, uh, and and this definition is not 100% clear because, um, uh, again, we can ask what it, what it means to, for something to be, uh, like, what is a possible thing or what does it mean for, some, for laws to be necessary? Uh, and then we, if we want to make these notions clear, we will end up uh, uh, bringing back in mathematical logic again. Um, but it, it seems at least to, um, to uh, sort of advance uh, the work of trying to explain what mathematics is. Um, I, think, I think there's something bright about this definition of mathematics as the, the science of, of the laws that all things follow. Um, um, but uh, it's definitely not um, sufficient as a definition and, and um, Cavallas points to this in his response a little bit later, where he, where he says that if you, um, if you if someone had no idea what mathematics was, and you said it's the science of the, all the laws that the laws that all possible things necessarily follow, um, then that doesn't really give uh, an idea of what mathematics is to that person. Um, so there's. Um, uh, it, again, your you, your definition fails at um, introducing someone into the circle of mathematics. Okay, so let's go on to the next bit. Um, there are the two short interventions, so I'll read uh, both of those together. Uh, so the first one is um, uh, given in indirect speech for whatever reason, um, rather than uh, verbatim. Um, so Mr. Chabotier returns to Mr. Carton's remark that the dialectical themes envisaged by Mr. Lotman are found only in certain parts of modern mathematics. 
there are a few examples of this in the work of the set theorists. When one has actually recognized one of these themes in certain operations of mathematics, one would perhaps be interest, uh, sorry, it would perhaps be interesting to see what initial conditions, what axioms imposed on the sets considered, allow this common character of the theories considered. Mr. Dubray, I was particularly interested in what Mr. Cavalier said about the effort that mathematicians make to reflect on their own science and about one of the difficulties they then encountered. To study the non-contradiction of a system of axioms, it is necessary to involve mathematical theories that are, on a, that are of a higher level. For example, to establish the non-contradiction of arithmetic, transfinite induction is used. I wonder whether this difficulty is not more apparent than real, and whether the power of the means necessary to establish the non-contradiction of a system of axioms does not rather highlight the deep nature and true scope of these axioms. Let us take the example of integers. It is perhaps not excessive to say that if we want to exhaust the mathematical content of this notion, we are led to link it to that of a well-ordered set. Let us indeed focus our attention not on the natural numbers considered individually, but on the set of these numbers. This set is ordered and even well-ordered. In addition, each element admits an antecedent. Since the notions of set, order, well-ordering, and antecedent are logically independent of that of natural number, let us consider a priori well-ordered sets where each element admits an antecedent. Two possibilities arise depending on whether or not the set admits a last element. We will call it finite in the first case, countable in the second. Starting from these definitions, it is easy to see that any two countable sets have the same power and that every finite set has the same power as a certain segment of a countable set. The set of natural numbers thus appears as a countable set chosen once and for all, but arbitrary to the segments of which one compares the finite sets. From the notions of union and product of sets arise immediately with their properties, the operations on the natural numbers. It is seen that a small number of remarkable properties characterize finite sets and countable sets, in particular the set of natural numbers in the more general class of well-ordered sets. We have also highlighted a fact that if you think about it, it seems quite natural. Like so many other sets considered in algebra, the set of integers is actually defined only up to isomorphism. Uh, so here we have, um, um, a question about the um, the difficulty that Cavaez presented in the negative portion of his presentation. So um, the the fact that in order to establish the non contradiction of arithmetic, you have to use um, mathematical theories that are more powerful than arithmetic, uh, like in Gensen's proof of the non contradiction, um, where he has to use transfinite induction. Um, there's, um, uh, and so here Dupre takes, takes it that, um, the, what this shows is not that, um, is not that there's a, something inherently impossible about, um, foundations in mathematics, um, but rather that, um, rather that this result shows that the axioms in question, the axioms of number theory, for example, or, or of arithmetic, um, uh, have um, some sort of um, uh, uh, depth to them that hasn't been um, exhausted yet. And he suggests an alternate um, approach, which would start from the notion of a well-ordered set uh, rather than starting from the notion of natural numbers. Uh, and here, um, 
so maybe I'll just explain what well-ordering means. Uh, and I think I might've mentioned this last time, but this notion of well-ordering um, is something that was introduced by Tsar Melo, um, who, um, who gave a proof that every set can be well-ordered, um, which uh, was, was a, a controversial proof because um, he, some people objected to his use of the axiom of choice. Uh, and it was only when he, um, uh, or some people objected to the, the method of proof and, and then he gave uh, an axiomatiz axiomatization of set theory um, where he explicitly states the, the axiom of choice and that developed into a whole controversy about that axiom. Um, but so well-ordering means that, so a set is well-ordered if every subset of that set has a least element. Um, so uh, a set of natural numbers, for example, um, if you take a set of natural numbers, then every subset of that set has a, a least element, a, a smallest number. Whereas um, if you take the set of real numbers, for example, um, um, uh, sorry, uh, I'm uh, mixing that up. Um, but um, there are other sets that are are not well ordered um, necessarily. Uh, so you have to you have to actually show that you can well order them. Um, but uh, it's it's not uh, immediately obvious that um, that uh, if you take a subset of a given set that it um, can be well ordered. It's, it's something that you have to actually prove. Uh, and yeah, so then Dubray takes it that. If you start from this notion of well-ordered sets, um, and then you uh, you define the natural numbers to be just um, uh, an isomorphism class of uh, of uh, well-ordered sets with no last member, uh, then you can avoid some of these difficulties. And I think um, I don't know all the technical details, but I think this doesn't exactly work. Um, I think you do need to use uh, principles like transfinite induction um, that are more powerful um, than than uh, principles of arithmetic uh, in order to prove the consistency of arithmetic. So the you can definitely construct um, the natural numbers out of set theory, for example. Like this is um, done in in like a, a first or second year logic class today. Um, so you can you can define the zero as the empty set, uh, and then one is uh, the set that contains the empty set and the singleton of the empty set, uh, and then uh, and so on. Um, um, so you can you can define natural numbers just in terms of sets, um, but you to actually prove that um, this. Uh, the set of the um, the theory of arithmetic is non-contradictory. You have to use um, notions like transfinite induction. Um, oh yeah, maybe I'll just mention or explain a little bit what what he says right at the end when he says that the set of integers is, is defined only up to isomorphism. Um, so isomorphism is uh, um, in sort of uh, vague terms. It it just means that. Uh, two two things are isomorphic if they have the same structure in some relevant sense of structure. Um, so, um, in uh, 
in group theory, then two groups are isomorphic if they have the same group structure. Um, or in in category theory, two ca categories are um, isomorphic if they have the same category structure, uh, etc. Um, and in various particular theories, there are different ways of of showing that two things are isomorphic. Um, but uh, and so it depends on the particular type of structure in question what exactly that isomorphism means. Um, but in general, you can show that something is isomorphic um, by showing that a function uh, between those two things has an inverse. So you can you can go from A to B uh, using some function f, and then you can go from B back to A using the inverse of f, and you get back the A that you started with. Um, and um, yeah, so in, in the case where, where you have uh, a function uh, that has an inverse, then you have an isomorphism uh, uh, between the two um, sets or the two structures that are being related to each other by that function. And, and then so to say that um, to say that something is defined only up to isomorphism means that um, you you define the the structure of something um, um, but you're considering isomorphic structures to be equivalent or or interchangeable in some uh, in some way. So um, like if you if you take um, uh, the sets of numbers, uh, the set of natural numbers, for example, um, the the set of the set of natural numbers is isomorphic to the set of even numbers because you can take any number and multiply it by two and you get an even number. Um, and and so in some sense those two sets are equivalent to each other if you just if you're just taking them uh, as sets uh, there's no uh, you, you're essentially just labeling the the elements in a different way you're not actually the the two sets have the same structure um, and and so that's what um, defining something up to isomorphism means it's it's treating uh, isomorphic structures as equivalent as, as just variants of each other rather than as uh, uh, distinct structures. Okay, so let's go on to the next bit. Um, so Kappa-S's response is um, a couple of pages long. Um, so maybe we can read uh, a page or so and then stop. Uh, Angus, if you'd like to read. Uh, yeah, are we, a, I shall reply. Yes. Okay, Mr. Cavallas, I shall reply if you don't mind in the reverse order of the speeches. To Dupre, I will answer in a very simple way. Dupre is not the only one to say that what Gödel discovered must inevitably have been found. Yes, but when Gödel presented his paper, no one suspected that such a thing was possible. One worked around Hilbert von Neumann, whom I have mentioned. One worked for years to try to demonstrate with finite means the non-contradiction of arithmetic without appealing to transfinite induction. Von Neumann himself was very surprised by Gödel's result. As for the priority between notions of integers and well-ordered or countable sets, it is a question for the mathematician. I will not allow myself. I will not allow myself to solve it myself. My humble opinion is that the notion of integer is the first one. And this seems to me also confirmed by the work, for example, of von Neumann on the axiomatization of set theory, where prior to the notion of a well-ordered set, there is what he calls the notion of numbering. That is to say, 
an extension of the notion of integer by matching an object each time with the system of already numbered objects. By extending in this way, we arrive at the notion of transfinite number. This has only a very vague connection of, with Gödel's result. The aim was to demonstrate whether it was possible using finite arithmetic, the ordinary, the ordinary complete induction axiom, well, not the general complete induction, to make appear a certain property in the symbols, arithmetical non-contradiction. Gödel managed to demonstrate that this was impossible. This is a considerable result. About a month ago, Gödel introduced another considerable result. The possibility of demonstrating using the axioms of set theory without the axiom of choice, the non-contradiction with these axioms of the axiom of choice, and even of the continuum hypothesis. If I cite this new example, it is to show that the expansion of these meta-mathematical procedures makes it possible to ensure, if we give ourselves radically new procedures, increasingly vast theories. For Schrecker, I do not know if he is satisfied with his definition of mathematics. We should ask mathematicians what they think of it. If someone has never done mathematics and they are told it is a deductive science, I do not think it will give them the idea of mathematics. What I mean is this, what do we actually think or what do we actually think of when we talk about science and deductive science? There's only one way to think something deductively, and that is to do mathematics. Here I touch a little on the problem that I wanted to avoid, and you will tell me that the definition of a deductive science is a logical question. I do not want to get into this debate, but if we want to know what a deduction is, we have only one way to do mathematics. And the so-called deductive logical procedures are a very elementary mathematical combinatorics. I would add that this is very important. I can rely on the testimony of Carnap, who was in favor of reducing a mathematical notion to a logical notion. However, he had to specify in his, uh, I can't pronounce that, logish syntax or spraka, I guess, that now that now he was saying the meaning of a sign is its mode of use. It is impossible to give full meaning to the notion of deduction independently of mathematical development. Moreover, if you limit yourself by deduction to the propositional or the predicate calculus, you will not have the axiom of complete induction, and it will not mean anything to say mathematics is a deductive science. Since the axiom of complete induction, as Poincaré said, as Hilbert took it up again, is the very essence of mathematical life. Uh, should I stop there? Yeah, let's, let's stop there. Um, let's see. Um, yeah, so he, Kaveas uh, here talks about Gödel's um, um, incompleteness theorem, uh, incompleteness theorems, I should say. Um, which we've we've talked about before, um, and um, he he mentions how surprising these theorems were um, when they were first presented. Even if afterwards you can you can sort of um, you can see the necessity of them. Uh, um, and actually, I, I've just been reading. Um, there's a, a biography of Gödel that came out last year uh, that I've been reading, um, and. Uh, 
he talks about um, um, how von Neumann was working on a proof of the consistency of arithmetic, and uh, he says that he he um, had a dream on on two successive nights. He had a, a dream of how to solve the problem, how to solve the the how to prove the consistency of arithmetic, and uh, each time he woke up and then you know ran to his desk and tried to write down as much as possible, um, but he he didn't get there. Um, and he, 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 you know, got a little bit further, but he didn't actually, uh, solve the problem because of course we now know it, it was unsolvable. Um, but he, uh, he always regretted that he didn't have the same dream on the third night because he thinks he would have solved it. Um, um, but that's just to show that, um, uh, before Gödel presented his results, um, everyone sort of assumed that, um, it would be possible to prove the consistency of arithmetic using finite methods, and it was just um, a matter of you know finding the the actual methods that would work, uh, and 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 so um, Gödel's result was was very surprising, and uh, there were mathematicians who were very um, upset by this result, and um, I forget who it was in particular. There was someone who uh, refused to speak to Gödel at some conference afterwards. Um, um, uh, you know, because he was upset about this result. Um, and then he also, so Kaveas also here um, mentions the uh, um, the non-contradiction proof that Gödel gives later on. Uh, this is in 1939, um, so it's just just prior to um, the the talk itself. Um, so Gödel gives a proof that. Um, the axioms of set theory. Um, um, if you if you take the axioms of set theory without the axiom of choice, then um, you can't make uh, you can't make them contradictory by adding the axiom of choice. So if you assume that the axioms of set theory are not uh, contradictory, then adding the axiom of choice doesn't make them contradictory. Uh, and then likewise for the continuum hypothesis. Um, uh, and the continuum hypothesis is, uh, uh, yeah, we probably shouldn't get into it here, but it's a, a hypothesis that uh, Cantor stated about the sizes of uh, infinite sets um, and which sizes are, are possible. Um, uh, and and uh, Cantor tried to prove it uh, for years, but was never able to do so. And... Uh, Gödel eventually showed, uh, sorry, uh, yeah, Gödel showed that uh, it was non-contradictory. Um, so if you if you take the axioms of set theory, you don't get a contradiction by adding um, the continuum hypothesis as a new axiom. Uh, and so you you also don't get a contradiction if you add the negation of the continuum hypothesis um, as an axiom. So that means it's not possible to prove. Uh, the continuum hypothesis just from the the axioms of set theory. So um, what Contour was trying to do was actually impossible. Um, so that's what that uh, example uh, or that uh, reference to um, the uh, Gödel's non-contradiction proofs here is about. Um, and Kavayas uh, takes this as uh, as uh, an instance of how. Um, Meta mathematics um, or um, 
the mathematization of what was a philosophical problem leads to the expansion of mathematics. Um, so, uh, and, and this is related to the, the impossibility of defining mathematics, because if you say that mathematics is, um, is defined by, um, you know, these given sort of, uh, procedures or, or, you know, these 10 or, or a hundred or whatever deductive, uh, procedures, then, um, you know, the next year or 10 years later or whatever, someone else is going to invent a new procedure that is not on your list. Uh, and, uh, and this procedure will, um, will still be mathematical, but it's, it's, a a novel introduction. It's not, um, something you could foresee, uh, in advance. Um, and then he, he responds to, um, to Schrecker um, about this, I, this question of defining mathematics. Um, uh, and then he, he, um, he suggests that this is not um, a very satisfactory definition, as, as we've talked about earlier, um, defining mathematics in terms of uh, deduction uh, is not satisfactory because you in order to understand what deduction means, you have to actually do mathematics. So you're not actually, um, you're, you're still sort of caught in the circle of mathematics. You're not um, standing outside and, and then defining what that circle is. Um, and then he, um, he points to, um, so in, in Carnap, um, so Carnap is a, or at, at that time at least, was a logicist. So he he thought that um, the notions of mathematics should be reduced to notions of logic. Um, but then at the same time, he um, he has to say that um, uh, the meaning of a sign is its mode of use. So that um, it's only in the actual development of a mathematical theory in which this the sign appears that you can actually. Um, explain how how the or what the meaning of that sign is, um, and and then he he mentions um, so if you if you try to limit deduction uh, and say that you know, deduction just means um, deduction in uh, the propositional calculus or the predicate calculus or whatever logical system you pick, um, uh, then um, you you don't have um, these extra logical principles that are essential for mathematics, like the principle of complete induction. Uh, and um, so without without these principles, um, it's impossible to to do mathematics as it's um, you know in its full development uh, in even basic stuff like arithmetic is not possible. Um, so, uh again this this shows that um you can't define mathematics in terms of something that is not mathematical you have to actually the only way to um to explain what mathematics is or or to um to to do math the only way to uh show what mathematics is is actually to do mathematics you can't um define it in terms of something else outside of mathematics Okay, so let's go on to the next part of the discussion. Um, so I can read this bit. With what Mr. Fréchet said to me, I regret that I completely disagree. 
I'm not trying to define mathematics, but by means of mathematics, to know what it means to know, to think, it is basically very modestly taken up the problem posed by Kant. Mathematical knowledge is central to knowing what knowledge is. Mr. Frechet says to me, there are notions that are taken from the real world and other notions that are added by the mathematician. I answered that I don't understand what it means because I don't know what knowing the real world is other than to do mathematics on the real world. What do you call the real world? I'm not an idealist. I believe in what is experienced. To think of a plane, do you live it? What do I, th what do I think when I say I think this room? Either I will speak of lived impressions, d'impression vécu, rigorously untranslatable, rigorously unusable by means of a ruler, where I will do the geometry of this room and I will do mathematics. What do you think when you think of plane? The geometrical properties of this plane, the symmetry? Our disagreement stems from the fact that I have not expressed my thoughts enough. I feel all my inadequacy. I spoke of a solidarity based on sensible gestures. There is not on the one hand a sensible world that would be given, and on the other hand, the world of the mathematician outside. The symmetry of the plane, for example, coincides with this character of permutation, which is one of the properties that I experience in the sensible world. Mr. Frechet, this character is revealed to me by the sensible world. Mr. Cavallès, Hilbert used to say that there, there is never any mathematical thought without the use of science, without sensible work on science. I apologize for saying this. I suppose that mathematicians agree with me that they experiment on the science they have. There is, in a formula, a kind of call. Who could do without the circle with its center, the cross of coordinate axes? Arithmetic signs are written figures, geometric figures are drawn formulas, and it would be as impossible for a mathematician to do without them as it would be to ignore the parentheses when writing. I quote from memory Hilbert's very nice article on this. Before the war, it is from the early Hilbert. This article studies unconscious experiments on possible relationships, the possible use of certain signs. I know the use I can make of them. There is a possibility of experimentation. We cannot exhaustively define the mathematical object independently of the implementation of the object in the sensible world. I believe that this, is the starting, that this starting point is never left in the sense that there is an internal solidarity and that whenever we substitute more thought out objects for a less thought out mathematical object, that is to say, when we separate what was simply accidentally united by the procedure that I have indicated, to that extent, all the same, we are not leaving the sensible world. But there is autonomy. Indeed, one, the questions posed by direct practice in its unification, theoretical physics, take on meaning and form only by transforming themselves into mathematical questions, that is, by inserting itself into the becoming of pure mathematics. Two, this insertion does not cause a break. Physics acts only as an occasional revelator. In reality, the problem was latent. Internal difficulties, the requirement to overcome a system of notions that are too sketchy, in the fabric of the mathematical substance. Here again, I can invoke history. A close enough study would always show for, for all the examples of services rendered by physics to mathematics that there is an internal necessity, that physics is only an occasion. I think it is essential if you want to understand, and on this it seems to me that the disagreement is complete, but this has at least one advantage, which is that we can decide. Of course, we will not do it here. I think it is essential to see in the notions used by the mathematician to solve problems, the result of a requirement that was already in the previous system. It is possible because the mathematician is lazy or for extrinsic reasons, that he does not solve certain problems, that he cohabits with difficulties. But I do not believe that, he, that we can, because of this, deny the role of internal necessity. 
uh, let's stop here. Um, so here, here we have, um, I think this is a, a very interesting passage um, because here we have, um, I guess, the epistemological um, consequences of this notion uh, of Kavayas's of understanding of, of mathematics. Um, uh, and so he, he suggests here that what he's trying to do is not, um, is not to define mathematics uh, and uh, ultimately it's not, um, it's not a question of um, mathematics uh, in its own terms or for its own sake that he's, he's investigating. He's investigating mathematics as the sort of paradigm instance of human knowledge uh, so he wants to know what it is to know something, and he takes mathematics to be the um, the uh, the key uh, notion of or the key instance of knowledge. Um, and so he says, um, when we when we talk about knowing the real world, um, then there there the only true content of that. Uh, of that knowledge is a, a mathematical content. Um, so, if we if we just talk about um, sensible experience, then it's something um, it's something uh, uh, that is not exactly knowledge in the proper sense of the word. It's only when we start applying mathematics to um, the sensible world that we. Uh, that we have knowledge in the proper sense of the word. Um, and then he talks about the relationship between the sensible and um, and the mathematical. Um, and he he he's made this um, he's introduced this notion of a gesture before um, in his in his uh, presentation. Um, and here he he talks about the the continuity um, or the the imminence we can say of of mathematics in the sensible world. Um, so the when you do mathematics, you actually you know write signs on a piece of paper or on a blackboard or whatever. Um, you actually are are doing something uh, in the in the sensible world, um, and uh, you. You have a, a system of gestures that are considered to be allowed, and uh, um, you have sets of rules for um, you know what you can do with certain signs uh, and and the types of gestures that you're allowed to do um, given uh, given certain signs already present. Uh, and and so there's a, a certain sense in which um, mathematics is. Um, um, uh, an experimental science, uh, in the sense that you um, you have to um, actually write down certain uh, expressions on on the paper or on the blackboard, and then you you um, see what happens. In a sense, you you try out different gestures that you are allowed to do, and then you find that certain gestures have. Um, uh, uh, a consequence that allows you to proceed further and other ones sort of end up in a dead end. Uh, and then, so by trial and error, you, um, and then maybe flashes of insight, um, you sort of uh, end up discovering the solution to a problem. Uh, and then, and so there's this uh, 
contingency in advance to the problem in the sense that, um, there, like uh, I said, there's this trial and error aspect of, of solving a problem. Uh, and then um, uh, it's only after the problem is solved that the necessity uh, of that solution um, becomes uh, apparent. But at the same time, we have to um, we have to keep both the necessity and the contingency uh, in mind uh, when we're when we're talking about um, mathematical dialectics. And then he um, he goes on to talk about um, what Frechet had had objected um, in connection with um, uh, physics and other sciences presenting problems to mathematics and. He makes a, a pretty strong thesis, uh, claim here. Um, he he claims that um, these problems that are set for mathematics by other sciences are only ever occasions for um, for mathematics own development. So that um, there's really no um, there's really no sort of external influence on mathematics. Uh, so. Whenever physics or some other discipline sets a problem for mathematics, you're you're really only just um, eliciting something that was already uh, implicit in the uh, in the state of mathematics. And um, in principle, mathematicians could have arrived at, at um, the notions that uh, uh, the in 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 the actual history they arrived at only through uh, influence of physics. In principle, they could have uh, reached those notions just through the internal development of mathematics. Uh, and I think this this uh, strong thesis of autonomy is probably um, hard to maintain. Uh, I think um, there are definitely instances of um, um, mathematical uh, mathematical theories that were first um, uh, uh, motivated by examples from by problems from physics. Um, and uh, it's only afterwards that the the connection of that mathematical theory uh, with other theories and um, the sort of internal development uh, uh, of mathematics is, is made. Okay, so let's go on to uh, the next um, Sort of round. Uh, let's see. There's uh, Levy. Um, yeah, we can finish. We can go up to the the beginning of Lotman's um, uh, response. Um, Angus, if you want to read the next bit. Yeah, this is starting with Levy's response to Kavias uh, in '23. Um, I think we were. Yeah, uh, just the the line before that. It seems to me. Uh, okay, um, I'll just reread that line. It seems to me that Mr. Paul Levy was making more or less the same objection to me. And Levy says, I wanted to express the idea that there was something existing a priori regardless of how one discovers it. Kavayas, here again I have expressed myself in an insufficient way. I am not saying at all that these notions are dependent on a historical order. I believe they are required by the problems. When we have used integers, it is obvious that we will posit the product as commutative. There will be other cases where we use non-commutative products. Therefore, when you say, given a problem, there is a solution, or look, you will find it, as Hilbert said, 
this is what I indicated as the projection of a system of mathematical gestures. The historical mathematician contingent may stop, be tired, but the requirement of a problem imposes the gesture that will solve it. This is, if you like, what I had indicated when I said that it is the reality of knowledge, which from the very point of view of an anthropology or philosophy of the human constitution is the extraordinary miracle of human destiny, independent of life in the lived world, mon vécu. There are problems that require solutions and lead away from what is, lead away from what is by a necessary sequence. Here I would not be very far from Lokman, except for the word, the word real, which bothers me. It would be a question of distinguishing whether it is the real sensible, and here I do not agree, or if it is the actual reality of beings, and here I agree with him. And perhaps also with Mr. Paul Levy. That is to say, the solution is obviously required by the problem that has been raised. You say that it is somewhere, it is a matter of taste. Maybe he responds, the word somewhere indicates that it is not localized. Crochet. Personally, I completely agree with Mr. Paul Levy. I see this proposition as existing outside us. Kavaya says, Lodman separates himself from me. What I find very interesting in what he does are the bonds that he makes appear between certain theories. The future will show us who is right. Personally, I am very reluctant to posit something else that would dominate the actual thinking of the mathematician. I see a requirement in the problems themselves. Perhaps this is what he calls the dialectic that dominates. Otherwise, I believe that through this dialectic, we only arrive at very general relations, or at relations uh, such as those indicated by Mr. Cartan. There is undoubtedly interest in looking in this area, but to turn this into a philosophical position does not seem possible to me. I think we talked about this last time, but this seems like a pretty clear statement of the difference between Kavias and Lotman, just that Lotman has this, the pre-mathematical ideal problematic out of which mathematical theories are made concrete. And for Kavayas, the development, it goes from problem to solution, and the solution is contained in the problem and not in an ideal realm. Yeah, I think that's that's right. Um, I think this is sort of the, the core of the difference between them is, is this uh, notion that mathematics is governed by something extra mathematical um, that, that Lodman has. Um, but I also think that here we we see um, sort of where they they come closest to each other as well, um, because this notion that Cavalles, um points to here, um, this idea that there's a, a necessity or a requirement in the problems themselves in the development of mathematics, um, um, as he as he says here, he says maybe this is what Lotman calls the dialectic that dominates. Um, so this this necessity within the problems um, is uh, is where um, Cavalles's notion of the dialectic and Lotman's um, I think come closest to each other, uh, and then they sort of diverge when Lotman um, takes the 
the dialectic uh, to to be um, uh, an incarnation of something super mathematical. Um, so I think this is this that last paragraph is really um, uh, a key one to understand both uh, the difference between them and also where they come closest to each other. Okay, so let's go on to the the next section. Um, I think. Uh, let's see, it's about uh, a little bit more than a page, so I'll just read the, the rest, um, Lotman's response, um, and then we can discuss. We, we started a little bit later today, so we still have some, some time. Mr. Lotman, I'd first of all like to thank Mr. Cartan for the kindness with which he justified the logical interpretation I have given of certain contemporary mathematical theories, among which some of the most beautiful emanate from him. I'm also grateful to him for admitting that notions such as local and global matter and form are not linked to a given theory, but can be found in very different theories, such as analysis or geometry. In short, if Mr. Cartan does not feel for himself the need for a reference to a dialectic, he recognizes the right of philosophers to do so, and no encouragement can be more precious to them. I will be much less in agreement with Mr. Frechet. I spoke of the genesis of the real from the idea. Mr. Frechet says that he understands only the opposite, that is to say, the genesis of the idea from the real, by abstraction, of course. It seems to me in this respect that a distinction must be made between the historical order of human reflection and the logical or ontological order of dependence of notions. Mathematical theories seem to me to be given their full meaning when interpreted as, as answers to a dialectical problem or, or a question. It is clear that it is only through an effort of regressive analysis that one goes back from theory to the idea it embodies. But it is no less true that it is of the nature of an answer to be an answer to a logically prior question, even if the awareness of the question is later than the knowledge of the answer. The genesis I have spoken of is therefore transcendental and not empirical, to use Kant's vocabulary. As far as Mr. Eresman's objections are concerned, I am convinced that I agree with him, although he does not want to acknowledge it. Mr. Erasman says to me that the problems that I call dialectical remain vague until I specify the statement, and at that point they become pure mathematical problems. I have myself written that dialectics not being affirmative of any effective situation and being a pure problematic necessarily extended itself into actual, actual mathematical theories. The question is whether it is possible to consider the statement of a logical or metaphysical problem independently of any concrete mathematical solution. The answer to this question is in the history of philosophy. Let me give just two examples. One is that of the Leibnizian monad. It is possible to conceive as inscribed in the internal properties of a being all the relations that it supports with the whole universe. Sorry. Is it possible to conceive as inscribed in the internal properties of a being all the relations that it supports with the whole universe? This conception of the monad is purely metaphysical, and I have shown, I believe, in my thesis the links that unite it with the current theories of analysis cetus, which are, moreover, likewise of Leibnizian inspiration. As a second example, I take the one I gave above, the problem of reciprocity of action between two or more bodies, a problem certainly distinct from Newtonian theory, and of which Kant nevertheless believed that he had found a definitive solution in the famous law of universal attraction. The history of philosophy thus shows the autonomy of the con conception of structural problems in relation to the contingent elaboration of particular mathematical solutions. Mr. Shabotzi points out to me that I have attached great importance to theorems which establish the existence of certain functions on certain surfaces or certain sets, but that this result may seem less surprising if one realizes that the sets in question have been rigged 
so that it is quickly possible to find on them the, the functions sought. It would therefore seem that we, we find on a set only what we put beforehand. Such a way of presenting things does not seem to me to be to sufficiently highlight the fact that there can be two kinds of rigging in the sense of Mr. Shabotzi, those which are fruitful and those which are not. A set never possesses in the matter of properties any others than those given to it a priori by axioms. But it turns out that some of these artificial definitions have the consequence of bringing a set or a surface to such a state of completion or perfection that this internal perfection flourishes in affirmations of the existence of new functions defined on this set. This fecundity of certain structural properties, which extends itself into a genesis of new mathematical beings, seems to me precisely to distinguish within the possibilities of axiomatic definition, creative conceptions from those that lead to, no to nothing truly new. Mr. Ippolit reproaches me for using the term dialectic in at least three different meanings. There is one that I do not accept. It is the one according to which there could exist a dialectic of the local and the global that would be sufficient in itself independently of mathematics. On the other hand, the other two ways seem to me to complement each other and not to destroy each other. Mathematics constitutes a true dialectic of the local and the global, of rest and movement, in the sense that dialectic studies the way in which one can compose between them the abstract notions in question. This does not prevent us from conceiving a dialectic prior to mathematics, conceived as problematic. Mr. Ippolit tells me that to pose a problem is to conceive nothing. I reply after Heidegger that it is already delimiting the field of the existent. Mr. Schrecker mainly addressed Mr. Cavallès, but I believe that we agree in admitting the legitimacy of a theory of abstract structures, independent of the objects linked together by these structures. It only remains for me to reply to Mr. Cavallès. The precise point of our disagreement is not about the nature of mathematical experience, l'expérience mathématique, but about its meaning and scope. That this experience is the sine qua non of mathematical thought, that, that is certain, but I believe that we must find in experience something other than experience. It is necessary to grasp, beyond the temporal circumstances of the discovery, the ideal reality which is the only one capable of giving its meaning and value to mathematical experience. I conceive of this ideal reality as independent of the activity of the mind, which in my opinion intervenes only when it comes to creating actual mathematics. Mathematics belongs to the field of action, but the dialectic is above all a universe to contemplate, whose admirable spectacle justifies and rewards the long efforts of the mind. Right, so here we have uh, Lutman's responses to some of the objections that have been raised to his, his uh, arguments by the various participants. Um, and so he, uh, in, in relation to Frechet, uh, he, he, um, he rejects the idea of um, uh, the genesis of the ideal from the real by abstraction. Um, and he, he, so he says in the historical order uh, of human reflection, so in the order in which um, the ideas, the, the various mathematical concepts first appear, um, you might have something like uh, uh, an ordering from uh, the real to the ideal, uh, and then something like abstraction. So we we come to know the the, uh, the we come to have the concept of numbers, possibly by abstracting from uh, real objects, and uh, you know defining this uh, numerical property um, that that objects have. Um, but uh, 
uh, in the logical or ontological order, uh, it's it's numbers that are um, more fundamental or that are anterior to um, concrete objects or or physical objects, uh, and and um, the the idea uh, in the specific sense that that uh, Lotman uses it in in the sense of a, a dialectical um, idea is anterior to mathematical um, uh, concepts, um, and it, again, is, this is an anteriority in a logical or ontological sense. So it's something more fundamental, um, uh, and then the the mathematical theory the, that is actually realizing that dialectical idea is something um, that is uh, derived from the the underlying um, realm of the ideas. Uh, and then, yeah, as I mentioned when we were talking about uh, Erasman's comments, um, um, he his his objections are effectively just restating. Um, uh, Lodman's thesis that um, it's only in mathematical theories that the relations between mathematical, no or, uh, sorry, um, dialectical notions um, uh, are realized. So you can state the problem in, uh, philosophers can state the problems uh, of the relationship between uh, dialectical notions, but only mathematicians can actually solve them by creating mathematical theories. Um, and then, um, yeah, I'll skip ahead to Hippolyte, the, the response to Hippolyte. Um, so here he, um, he, he rejects uh, the third notion of dialectic that Hippolyte had, um, had suggested was uh, at work in in Lotman's presentation, so that he he denies that there is such a thing as a dialectic of the local and the global, uh, and the uh, intrinsic and the extrinsic, and so on that would be independent of mathematics. Um, so it's only in mathematical theories that these notions are related to each other, um, and uh, uh, in in trying to solve the problem of what that relation is, you you end up having to do mathematics. You you can't um, you can't solve it through philosophical thought. Uh, and then the last bit is um, is um, Lotman's response to Cavayes, and he um, he so he, he says that they agree with each other on the notion um, on the nature of mathematical experience, um, uh, but they disagree about the meaning and scope of mathematical experience. So um, they both regard mathematical experience as being something dialectical. Um, and as we saw at the end of Cavallese's presentation, they, they, they sort of approach each other um, on the uh, understanding of of what that dialectic consists in, uh, but then they diverge in that um, Lotman sees this mathematical experience as um, as grasping something that is beyond that experience, uh, this ideal reality, um, this realm of the dialectic. Uh, and then he he gives um, a very uh, platonic. Um, depiction of what this means. And, and so he, he talks about um, contemplating the universe of the dialectic, 
uh, as as the reward for the the efforts of the mind in doing mathematics. Um, and uh, yeah, so this is again a, a very Platonic notion, um, not in the sense that Platonism is usually understood in philosophy of mathematics, um, but in in relation to Plato's work itself. Okay, so I think we can end here unless there's any final thoughts or questions or comments. Okay. Um, yeah. So, oh, I mean, yeah. So, yeah. Thanks. Um, thanks for reading through this with me. Um, and um, yeah, uh, we can. Um, so for next week, maybe we can go back to Simon Doe and, and start on the second volume. Uh, which consists of um, several um, texts that are related to uh, the individuation book um, itself, like the, the actual thesis. Um, so there's the, the first one is called History of the Notion of the Individual. And it's essentially like a, a history of philosophy um, from the perspective of the, the notion of the individual. So he starts with the pre-Socratics, uh, and you know goes through Plato and Aristotle, um, and uh, he he does a little bit of medieval philosophy. And there's a strangely long section on Rousseau. Um, it's like twenty pages or something like that. Um, and um, um, yeah, so that will take a the the text itself is like one hundred and fifty pages or something like that. So it'll, it'll take us a while to get through that. And then there are a, a couple of other texts. Um, that uh, um, are fill out the rest of the volume, so it'll take us, you know, a few months to uh, to get through the second volume. Uh, I think it's shorter than the first volume, though. Is there as much quantum physics in the second volume? No, I don't think so. I think we're we're pretty safe from quantum physics. That's exciting to me. I uh, I liked the quantum physics stuff in uh, in volume one, but I know it was kind of difficult. Um, I've been actually doing a, a fair amount of reading in in that area um, in uh, philosophy of physics and and stuff like that uh, over the past few months. Um, as a sort of sparked by our discussions uh, in in uh, reading Simon Don. Oh, nice. Yeah. I I definitely left it behind when we finished uh, <laughs> part one of the individuation. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. So thanks again. Uh, and uh, hopefully see you all next week. Uh, we'll pick up with Simon Don again. Sounds good. Thanks. All right, bye.